Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really appreciate that. So on this episode of the show we're going to discuss the Civil War in Kerry, the Terror Month, March 1923, and the end of the Civil War. Now, one of the reasons why we're doing this show, John, is that you're just back from the 100th anniversary conference about the Civil War in Kerry that was on in Tralee recently. Will you tell us about that? I was down in Tralee in February, and yeah, we had a centenary conference, and it was sold out every day. Like, the Civil War is something which is really alive in the memory in County Kerry. Like, I got off the train and I got a taxi with a couple of other people who were at the conference. And a taxi driver says, you know, what are you doing here? And he said, we're here for the Civil War conference. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, my grandfather was killed out the road there, out in Tralee. And that's what you get in County Kerry. It's um, Laura McIntyre, who's been on the show, said to me, and I think it's a good point, that there's this very lingering sense of injustice in Kerry that was never acknowledged what happened there towards the end of the Civil War. And perhaps for that reason, it's very strongly in people's memory even today. It was organised by Owen O'Shea and Mary McAuliffe. We had a big range of speakers, including myself, and we talked about you know, the violence of the Civil War in Kerry and beyond. We talked about the role of women, the memory of the Civil War, the commemoration of the Civil War in Kerry. It was, in a way, a coda follow-on to the Civil War Conference in Cork the year before, but with a much more Kerry flavour to it. Well, and if anyone wants to see it, all of the uh, the panels and the talks are up on YouTube. If you just look up Kerry Civil War Conference, including your own talk, what was your talk on? So my talk was on National Army reprisals during the Civil War, but especially in County Kerry. Well, that's definitely something we're going to get into now, because we're recording this now in April. And as I said, the 100th anniversary of what was considered the, the Terror Month, uh, which probably was the Civil War at its worst uh, in Kerry was March 1923. But to give some context and walk it back a bit, what was Kerry's experience of the War of Independence? There's a lot of mythology about this, Carl, right? So in the 1930s, to work backwards, um, Owen O'Duffy went to Tralee as the leader of the new Blue movement. Owen O'Duffy had been a commander of the National Army, the Free State Troops in Kerry in the opening months of the Civil War. And there was a big riot. People didn't like O'Duffy coming down there. And O'Duffy said, in Kerry, they were nothing but cowards. They were afraid to fight the Black and Tans. And the only thing they did in the War of Independence was to shoot an unfortunate policeman on the day of the truce. And so this mythology has grown up among possibly the Free State side and so on, the pro-treaty side of the Civil War. Kerry didn't do anything in the War of Independence. And they were very brave when it came to fighting Irish soldiers, but they didn't do anything against the Black and Tans. So that's not true. People would be probably unsurprised to learn. The death toll was less, so about 100 people were killed in Kerry in the War of Independence, whereas nearly 200 were now finding were killed in the Civil War. What you find in Kerry is initially the more active part of Kerry is the northern part of Kerry, which is Kerry Number 1 Brigade in IRA organization uh, around Tralee and that area, which is surprising in one way because it's the flatter part of County Kerry. It's still not flat, actually, it's still quite mountainous parts of it, but there was quite a lot of attacks on the RC and the British Army. 
the town of Tralee was put under curfew. It's called the Siege of Tralee in November 1920 after a number of policemen had been killed in retaliation to the hanging of Kevin Barry in Dublin and the RAC, including the Black and Tans, basically closed down the town. They wouldn't let any food in or out. They shot several people. They burned down all the businesses that were connected with supporters of Sinn Féin. It was only lifted after an international outcry, actually. It was that the foreign press got in. There was a certain amount of dissension in Kerry units, and the IRA GHQ was kind of unhappy with them, about them squabbling with each other. So they sent down an officer, Paddy Cooney, from Dublin. And this was not very popular among Kerry people, but he does seem to have done a good job in IRA terms. He does seem to have got them online. And there was quite a lot of big ambushes in Kerry, particularly towards the end of the War of Independence, toward the truce, notably the Hetford ambush, which is near the Cork Kerry border there, where there was a train carrying British troops captured, 10 British soldiers killed there. There was a large ambush of the RSC in Rathmore, and there was eight of them killed. I mean, they were lured there with the body of an informer. So, you know, war, war is a terrible thing. Like, let's, let's not play around that. But Kerry was very active. It wasn't. In terms of body count, it was less than County Cork, but it was certainly a very active county. There was three active brigades, so Kerry number one, North Kerry, Kerry number two, which is in South and West Kerry, Kerry number three, which is in the uh, Carcassonne kind of peninsula there. But there was a perception that Kerry hadn't pulled his weight. It doesn't really stack up with the evidence. Kerry was more active than almost any other county apart from you know, Dipperary and Cork and Dublin and so on. But Certainly, by the time of the truce, uh, whereas um, you know the Cork brigades of the IRA were kind of on the back foot because there'd been a massive deployment of British military there, the Kerry columns felt that they were only kind of getting going, actually. So it's possible, and this is again part of the, the Civil War backbiting over all this, that the Kerry columns did feel that they had something to prove in, in the Civil War. So what was the reaction in Kerry to the treaty when it was eventually signed? In terms of the IRA, again, you know, the mythology would say that everybody in Kerry is against the treaty. That's not the case, you know, so there's a substantial part even of the IRA in Kerry, which is for the treaty. So, for example, in Kerry number one, which is the largest and the most active brigade in North Kerry, Ned Horan, for example, is for the treaty, and there's a substantial number of pro treaty volunteers. And the town of Listowel is actually occupied by pro treaty elements of the IRA in County Kerry. However, and this is the significant thing, most of the IRA in Kerry is adamantly against the treaty. And this is the norm in the IRA in Munster. And it's, it's the IRA's Munster heartland of that era. The majority is against the treaty. And this is especially so in Kerry, especially in Kerry two and three brigades, south and west of County Kerry. And when the Civil War broke out, the only pro-treaty post at the store was rapidly taken by the pro-treaty guys. So in the early months of the Civil War, July and August 1922, Kerry is occupied and actually administered, just like Cork next door, by the anti-treaty IRA. And so the pro-treatyites would later characterise this as a time of anarchy. And say, they would say Humphrey Murphy, who was the leader of Kerry number one, the most senior figure in the Kerry IRA, although you know, John Joe Rice and John Joe Sheehy in, in the south and west of the county had staked their own claims. But the pro-treatyites would refer to this as, as Humphrey Murphy's reign of terror. And they would say that they commandeered and they looted everything that they wanted. They took property off people who didn't support them. That's true, to be honest, and especially um, the big houses and so on. Um, not as many of them were burned down in County Kerry, but they were certainly used as billets and food and other property was taken out of them and so on. And what the National Army would certainly say is that for months afterwards, they were finding the loot, as they referred to it. So the property that was commandeered from pro-treaty supporters in the period when the, when the IRA was kind of, I don't want to use the word in occupation, but administering County Kerry, you almost have a military occupation, though, I would say, County Kerry, in July 1922. Well, you mentioned there with Listowel and the fact that Kerry is under the control of the uh, anti-treatyites in Dublin uh, during this period and leading up to the Civil War, you start to see the beginnings of state building and not just like building a new state, but building a new army. So... How does that affect things if you're trying to recruit pro-treaty IRA people to a new Free State Army, National Army, and getting in new recruits as well, new volunteers? You know what's really interesting about that, though, is so initially the National Army is really something that's based in Dublin. So they take over Beggar's Bush Barracks, which is in the southeast of Dublin City, as we know, from the auxiliaries, actually, who've been 
person there. And the first unit there is the Dublin Guard, which is basically a pro-treaty unit of the Dublin IRA, and the squad, the active service unit, and so on. But what happens is pro-treaty volunteers from the rest of the country get rotated through Beggar's Bush, and they get uniformed and armed, and then they get sent back to wherever it is they're from. You see this in all kinds of places. But you have a national army in Dublin, and they later on take over other barracks. They take over Portobello, Wellington, and so on. And you have a national army in places like Athlone, because it's occupied by pro-treaty volunteers under Sean McKeown. But outside of that, what you have is the pro-treaty units of the IRA. And so they're effectively just IRA volunteers. They're a bit better armed than they had been before the truce, because they're, you know, the national army is armed by, by Britain, and the arms are distributed. But really, it's the pro-treaty IRA. So the lads in Listowel, and they use the word lads because they're just volunteers of the IRA, are pro-treaty volunteers, and that's all they are. And what you find in Cork and Kerry, though, is that a lot of them get kind of temporarily exiled from the county when the Civil War starts. A lot of them make their way to Dublin, or they just lie low. And there's people arrested, for example, in Cork and Kerry because they're trying to recruit underground for the pro-treaty army in the first month of the Civil War. But in terms of a national army, like uniform, disciplined, whatever, it doesn't exist at all in the provinces until after the Civil War starts. Like, they have to really make it on the hoof. With Kerry under anti-treaty control, how did the provisional government plan to retake the county? They come up with a pretty good plan, actually. What happens is the Cork and Kerry volunteers with the anti-treaty IRA, so the ones who were column men from the War of Independence, the best fighters, the best equipped, the best motivated, are not in the county. They're up in County Limerick fighting almost really a conventional battle against the National Army forces, which are, which took Limerick City and which are trying to advance south via Kilmallock and Newcastle West. Um, and actually most of the Cork and Kerry men are in the Kilmallock area. And it's clear that this is not an easy fight because, like, we always talk about the Civil War as being, you know, in military terms, asymmetric, right? And it's not really that way at the start because the National Army is so inexperienced. And what you find actually is that the anti-treaty IRA get the better, actually, in most of these engagements in the Limerick countryside. And you see, like, the surrender of hundreds of National Army soldiers who just, you know, put down their arms and give up, and they, they're imprisoned in, in Cork City, actually. Uh, and, you know, there's even newsreel footage of them playing drilling. And, and there's also, like, significant casualties, not not by the standards of, you know, the Great War or anything, but by Irish standards, significant casualties. So the plan that they come up with is a seaborne landing to get around the back, because the anti-treaty guys had all their best fighters up in County Limerick, and to the left, besides it does show the limited nature of military fighting in Ireland, because like this is incredibly risky. You're landing at a defended port, but they, in Kerry, to answer your question, Paul, they do take the town of Tralee, and there's some pretty hard fighting, like most of the anti-treaty guys are away, but there's a skeleton garrison behind, and um, there's nine pro-treaty soldiers killed trying to take the town of Tralee, and most of them are killed by a single machine gun, which is, you know, in a mill in Rock Street in, in Tralee. But they take Tralee, and they also take Cork the following week. And so this collapses the line in Limerick, the anti-treaty acts blood back kind of, but they're, you know, they end up kind of in refuge in the mountains in, in County Cork and County Kerry. And the pro-treaty acts then they come in from the north as well. So Duffy advances from the north into County Kerry. There's also a seaborne landing from Clare. So Clare is a majority pro-treaty county in terms of the IRA, uh, which is odd because later on it becomes a Fianna Fáil stronghold. But at the time, that's the way it is. Michael Brennan and the approach you know, brings his people with him from the pro-treaty side. So they land by boat from Tarbot and to Listowel, the big back in Stowell. And so from three different points, so Paddy O'Daly and the Dublin Guard take Tralee by Stephen Seaborn Landing, Owen O'Duffy arrives in from the north, and the Clare first western, come in by boat to Tarbot to, and take Listowel. So by this kind of daring manoeuvre, you'd have to say, the pro-treatyites rest the main towns of County Kerry. But of course, that's not going to be the end of the story. No, and you have mentioned one name in particular that I think is going to become very important for the rest of the episode, Paddy O'Daly and the Dublin Guard. They really become part of the whole story of the Civil War in Kerry. And why is Paddy O'Daly such an important figure? Yeah, where do you start with Paddy O'Daly? So, you know, I've been talking about this with Brian Hanley recently, who's been on the show and listeners will probably be familiar with. And Brian said to me, when you look at it, 
almost all the atrocities in civil war are traced back to these coterie of officers who'd served in the squad and the intelligence department of the IRA for Michael Collins, the most prominent of whom is Paddy O'Daly. Now that's not quite true actually. There's a certain amount of mythology about this, as I'll get back to because there's other culprits in Kerry as well. But Paddy O'Daly had been a founder member of the squad, so the assassination unit for the IRA intelligence in Dublin. He is captured, and the British don't seem to know who he was and his provenance because they released him from internment midway through the War of Independence. And he takes over the command of the squad and later the Dublin Guard, which is an amalgamation of the squad and the active service unit after the Customs House raid in Dublin in May 1921. But Paddy O'Daly is a hardened killer. Now, that's not a criticism necessarily because that's what he was asked to do in the IRA. He was out Bloody Sunday. He was out various other assassinations, close-range assassinations of British officers in the War of Independence. And he's one of the commanders of the Dublin Guard, first unit of the National Army. Now, whether it's what he'd been through in the War of Independence, and he'd been through the Rising as well in 1916, and all through the War of Independence, and he'd been injured, he'd been captured, and so on, he'd killed quite a lot of people at this point, and ordered them to be killed. He was a brutal man, and I, I, you know, I don't say this in any partisan way, I think that's objectively just true. Paddy O'Daly was a, a very hard man, brutal man in many ways. So, he comes into Kerry in command of the Dublin Guard. Now, there's a couple of misconceptions here, or, you know, not misconceptions, but like distortions of Cromer. So the first thing one is, O'Daly is not actually in command of the Kerry command of the National Army for the first half of the Civil War. So the commander is actually W.R.E. Murphy, who is a veteran of the British Army. He'd also been in the IRA, you know, in the truce period, I think. But he's the commander in Kerry up to December 1922, and O'Daly is under him. O'Daly is actually in command of South Kerry. So that's one thing. The other thing is that in North Kerry, the troops are predominantly Clare and Galway men from the 1st Western Division under a man called Michael Hogan, who's from a very prominent family. His brother, Patrick, is the Minister for Agriculture. His other brother, James, another former IRA man, becomes Professor of History in UCC, University College Cork, which is interesting. And, and later on, an ardent blue ideologue, by the way, an author of a pamphlet called Ireland Become Communist, but I digress. So the troops arrive in Kerry and... Yes, O'Daly's men are not particularly popular. So, I mean, John de Rice, I think, one of the Kerry IRA commanders, anti-treaty IRA commanders, says they treated South Kerry as a hostile country. And that was true. So they were, really, as we get into, I suppose, they were really getting ambushed and stuff, and they, the Dubliners took it very personally. But it's also true that the same is true in North Kerry with the 1st Western Division, and this is what I'm getting onto. So Michael Hogan is also responsible for lots of appraisal killings there in North Kerry in the first half. And they seem to escape all the appropriate. Yeah, the dubs get blamed. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're obviously both from Dublin, but yeah. like the but the dubs get blamed for everything that happened in Kerry, whereas in fact the first Western, the Clare and Galway men have a, you know, they have something to do with it as well. But after the initial phase, when they take, for example, Tralee and Killarney and, and the other towns, they have a very hard time in Kerry, the appropriate troops do. So could we say as well, like, this period now when the Free State Army has come into Kerry and they've taken these towns, what is the situation like in the rest of the country in this period? Yeah, so it's it's very uneven though. And I mean, it's it's kind of what you'd expect, you know, in the sense that the IRA is a somewhat localised phenomenon, right? In the War of Independence, certainly if you look at the body count, it's concentrated in Dublin and Munster, you know, and to a much lesser extent in, in the West, in Connacht. And the same is very much true of the War of Independence. You know, there's geography of it is somewhat different in the sense that there are places like Wexford and Loud and Sligo, which are much more violent in the Civil War than in the War of Independence. But generally speaking, the violence of the Civil War, especially the lethal violence, is very much concentrated in Cork, Kerry, Tipperary, and to a lesser extent, Wexford, Kildare, Sligo, and of course Dublin City, which has its own story, which we probably get into before. But generally speaking, in the areas where the IRA and County Loud as well, where the 4th Northern Division is based, you know, Frank Aiken's men, were much, much stronger formation than they've been before the truce. But generally speaking, Kerry is just the most extreme of a national pattern in these areas where the anti-treaty IRA is strong, which is they're ousted from the towns uh, after a short and sharp period of fighting, really, in July and August 1922, 
But afterwards, the national army doesn't have the numbers, doesn't have the training, and doesn't have the organization to control the countryside. So in many places, I mean, Kevin O'Wiggins, for example, the minister for home affairs says, we, we don't control anything 10 miles outside of the town. So the anti-treaty guerrillas, where they're strong, they're mounting ambushes, they're doing attacks on towns, kind of full-scale attacks on towns. And where do you see this? You see this, first of all, in Cork and Kerry. And, and Cork is actually on a par with Kerry in the first half of the Civil War. Changes in the second half. You see it in Mayo and Sligo. You see it in, in County Wexford. And again, it, to a degree in the, the, the Louth kind of Armagh area, because you know, it straddles the new border there, Cork and Kerry tend to melt together a bit, is extremely well suited for guerrilla warfare. It's very mountainous. There's very few roads to a lot of it. Um, a lot of the towns are very remote. So, for example, they attack the town of Kenmare and they take it. Anti-treaty rights do in September 1922. And by the way, they assassinate two pro-treaty carry IRA officers who they find there. But, you know, it's months before the Free State can do anything about it. They take it in September and it's December before the pro-treaty troops come out an expedition to take it back. So Kerry being mountainous and isolated, being very strongly anti-treaty, and also there's cooperation between the Cork and Kerry units of the anti-treaty IRA, is a bit of a nightmare. It's it's the worst of a national pattern, if you like, from the pro-treaty side, where they kind of start to lose control of the countryside, actually, in the autumn of 1922. Well, you mentioned earlier at the start of the Civil War that the anti-treaty outs are in control, or in control of the towns and the countryside, and the view and the propaganda from Dublin and the provisional government is it's a reign of terror, it's anarchy, yeah. and the people want the provisional government to come in and retake the towns and retake the countryside and bring back order and stability. But with so many of these troops being from outside the county and not knowing the locality and the people, how do the locals view the behaviour of the pro-treaty troops? So this is a big question, you know, and very imperfect sources for this. But I will say this, though. So initially, the pro-treaty troops get a reasonably good, reasonably good reception when they get into Killarney, for example. Not such a good reception in Tralee, where the anti-treaty sentiment seems to be stronger. What the National Army Intelligence says, it's, it's fascinating reports, like it's a former British Army officer, the Abdul Intelligence, actually, rather than one of these former IRA guys who are so prevalent. And he, he uses very disparaging terms. He says, you know, the peasant population has no moral backbone, you know, and he says that they'll just support whoever's the top dog. W. Warrior Murphy repeats this in his reports, and he says we must show ourselves to be the top dogs, and we must show strength, that's how you'll get the people on our side. What actually seems to have happened is that they alienated many of the people. And if you look at the tactics that they used to scour the countryside and to try to find these guerrillas, that's not too surprising. So, you know, the micro-history of the Civil War is fascinating because, you know, armed engagements are relatively rare. Like, there's a significant number of people killed, but most of the time, what the pro-treaty troops are doing is they're searching the countryside ruthlessly. And the anti-treatyites avoid them until circumstances are favourable to them, which is the nature of guerrilla warfare, I suppose. But... So the micro-history is, they would go in and they would try to find concentrations of people, particularly men. And where did they find them? Well, mass on a Sunday. So they would go into a village and they would hold up them at mass and they would search everyone and they would beat up anyone who resisted and they would take all the men away for questioning. And they would do the same thing at the dance on Sunday night, which is, you know, this is the, the pattern of socialising at the time. They would surround the dance and they would, you know, they would beat up people and they would take them away for questioning. And very rarely did they find a suspect there. You couldn't imagine a better way to alienate the population. And this is not just Kerry. You see this all over the, the south of Ireland at the time. And the fact that most of the troops in Kerry are outsiders and Dubliners, that doesn't help things either. So, for example, John Pinkman, who is a pro-treaty volunteer, originally from Liverpool, actually, but he's in the Dublin Guard. And he strongly says that, you know, our lads, the Dubliners, they had a condescending attitude, you know, to the rural people and they called them things like Coaches and Pajos, which apparently was a term of abuse at the time, and stuff like this. And O'Daly himself, who I mentioned, who was a battalion commander at the time, you know, he has these very kind of emotional reports about getting ambushed. They, they go on patrol, and like, on occasions, they'd be ambushed three or four times, and they'd lose a number of people dead and wounded. And O'Daly would say um, things like, you know, we, the true national soldiers of Ireland, are being attacked by these cowards from behind bushes and boulders. And, and I mean, the irony is, of course, this is exactly what the British were saying about O'Daly and his friends just the year before. But 
my impression though is that there is actually significant welcome for the troops in Kerry because people really just don't want to see an end of the, the fighting. But they managed to alienate the people of, of Kerry, not only Kerry but also like you know parts of Cork and Limerick and so on, by the tactics that they use, by their own inexperience and their own blundering around and treating everyone as an enemy. So as we move on during the Civil War and we get to the stage where we're about to talk about the Terror Month. What is the situation in Kerry in late February 1923? And also as well, probably to put it into context, what is the situation in the country as a whole in late February 23? Right, so a couple of things. Number one, so you have a big flare-up of guerrilla activity in, in Cork and Kerry, really, in the autumn of 1922. Now, the National Army is growing and growing, so unlike the anti treaty IRA, they have funds, they have they have say state funds, they have the British and backing them ultimately arming them. So they recruit a lot of people. They're very worried in kind of September, October nineteen twenty two. They say both Emma Dalton in Cork and Murphy in Kerry say we need lots more people, we need lots more arms. But they do get substantially reinforced, they start to scour these mountain areas, they take back what the army would call uncovered spaces. And such as Ken Mayer, for example, they think that they're getting on top of the guerrillas by the end of 1922, both in Cork and Kerry. And there's substantial evidence for that, not so much in, in killed, but in arrests. So they, they arrest a heck of a lot of people, basically. And as we know, the number uh, in terms of the civil war is very large. So the number of 12,000 is the one we use, but actually it's more than that because lots of people are arrested and then released. So the true number in turn is even larger again and might even reach as much as. 15 to 20,000 perhaps. Anyway, so the gorillas, they're kind of confined to mountain areas. Life is tough for them, especially in the winter. And the other thing is the executions start. Now, there aren't any executions in Kerry until January 1923. And W. Warry Murphy says he's going to execute uh, four people in Tralee, but his opposite number and namesake, Humphrey Murphy, posts bills all over Tralee saying, if, if this happens, I'm going to kill eight Free State supporters. And W. Warry Murphy backed down, so he commuted the sentence to imprisonment. But W. Warry Murphy is recalled to Dublin in January of 1923. And his job is going to be uh, the commissioner of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. There's speculation one reason for this is because he'd been reluctant to execute people, but he is replaced as general officer commanding County Kerry by Paddy O'Daly, who we've already talked about. Mm. O'Daly's made of different stuff. So one of the first things that happens after O'Daly takes command is there is train wreck, so a lot of the anti-treaty campaigns such as property and roads and railways and so on, and there's train wreck and two drivers are killed when the line is, is blown up and the train goes off the cliff basically, the two drivers are killed. O'Daly immediately takes four prisoners out of the barracks in Tralee, he radios Dublin, says can I execute them? And they say yeah, the next day he shoots them by fire squad. You know, now there have been lots of reprisal killings in Kerry already by this point. People, you know, taken out and shot, but this is the first official execution. And so O'Daly immediately shows he's a new hardness, you know, he's made of sterner stuff, if you like, than W. Warry Murphy. But, to get on to answering your question, how are things in February 1923? What's very interesting is, so there's lots of executions throughout the country in January 1923. There's 34 executions throughout the country, and they're all around the country, really. And then the government has an amnesty in February 1923, the people could come in and surrender and not be executed, basically. And in Kerry, you see lots of people surrender. You, and this is, again, not part of the mythology, which is the Kerry fought to the end. But all around the country, but including in Kerry, you see whole columns coming in. For example, the Pally column come in. They give up their arms. They sign the form saying they won't wear arms against the government. And they surrender. And it looks like the thing might peter out. Whereas in County Cork, you know, the guerrillas have really been driven from most of the lowland areas of County Cork, and they're really confined to the area in, in West Cork for the most part, around Valley Bordy. Now, that area around Valley Bordy, the Free State can't enter it until the very end of the Civil War, and there's still a lot of anti-treaty aids under arms in County Cork, but the level of lethal violence really declines. What you see in Kerry is, despite surrenders, despite the fact that it looks like it's ending, you still have very strong, you know, anti-treaty uh, columns, and they're in very inaccessible areas, and also... I suspect that many of the court units are actually operating in Kerry by this point. So you do see a lot much stronger level of um, combat in County Kerry than you do almost anywhere else in the country by this time. So 
yes, people are surrendering. Yes, they're arrested. They've got an awful lot of anti-treaty arrested. But you still see, for example, an attempt in early March by the anti-treaty to assault Tarkis civilians, to assault the whole town. And there's a very significant, you know, gun battle, all-day gun battle, um, where there's five people killed, three state soldiers and two anti-treaty uh, And, you know, and lots more wounded. And this kind of thing is not happening really in the rest of the country, or very rarely by that time, where it's still, it's still happening in Kerry. So, yes, you have surrenders in County Kerry. Yes, the pro-treaty troops are getting on top of it. Yes, they think they've cleaned up the as they called it by the time, for example. But the Civil War is still stubbornly refusing to end in the first week of March 1923 in Kerry. And then the rest of the country is the Civil War stubbornly refusing to end. Not really. I mean, you know, yeah, the anti-treaty IRA by this point in most of the country is focusing. They're avoiding combat. Lots of people are surrendering. Lots of people are dumping arms and going home. In Dublin, for example, just this is an example I always use. Like there's a column which is operating in southeast Dublin and their safe house is, is hit and they're arrested and the ones there are sentenced to death and the rest of them, they send in their arms and they surrender to avoid them. The others getting arrested, getting executed. Um, and you see this a lot. You see this in Athlone. You see it around the country. Wexford, which had been a hotspot, big reinforcement sent there, reorganization, and they managed to get on top of them. Civil war is clearly coming to an end. And, you know, you see the frustration of the invention commander, the chief of the IRA, the chief of staff, and he's, he's saying, you know, the level, this level of activity is not acceptable. We need to open again. But they're not capable of it, you know. You know, there's places like in uh, the Mayo, Roscommon, Leitrim, Sligo area, where lots of the mountainous areas there are still out of the control of the pro-treaty troops and the pro-treaty government. But it doesn't really make a difference because the anti-treaty outs are really just hiding out there. The only area where you're seeing kind of anyway large-scale combat operations is County Kerry, I would say, by that time. Now let's move on to the actual the terror month and what we mean when we say that. What events really kick off this round of, of atrocities and, and counter-atrocities? Well, if I, if I can backpedal this a little bit, so we talked about the progress of the Civil War in County Kerry and the pro-treaty troops are frustrated and raged, if you like, by the casualties they've taken there. And this happens elsewhere in, in the Civil War, but especially in Kerry, they, they, they take out prisoners, they shoot them in reprisal, they kind of lie about it, they cover it up. And, you know, one of the very significant incidents that I like to highlight is the pro-treaty troops in County Cork in response to this happening and the Dublin troops squad officers especially were sent away now the same thing exactly happened in County Kerry so the first western under Michael Hogan killed a prisoner called Galvin they dumped him at Valley CD Cross which, which is of course a very ominous place and this is in, in September 1922 and the pro-treaty troops of Kerry number one brigade under Ned Horn mutinied as well when they said you know, we can, you know if we continue like this we'll be seen just like the Black and Tans were but in Kerry, the officers concerned, in this case again in the First Western, rather than the Dublin Guard, but they're not sent away. It's Oren who's forced to resign from the army. So there's this culture of impunity in the National Army about killing prisoners in County Kerry. It's bad enough under W. Oren Murphy, but it's considerably worse under Paddy O'Daly and the man who we haven't mentioned yet is head of intelligence, David Nelligan, who are two exceptionally ruthless men. And Nelligan, whereas Daly is probably responsible for lethal reprisals. Nelligan is responsible for interrogations in, in Tralee, which apparently were exceptionally brutal, like the prisoners were beaten with hammers and stuff like this. Well, let's just talk about Nelligan because uh, he's such a fascinating figure, but he's one that's not really that well known. Yeah, I mean, I think if people have heard of David Nelligan, they've heard of him as the spy in the castle. So David Nelligan is, or was, a detective in the Dublin Metropolitan Police. So the G Division, the equivalent of the Special Branch in British ruled Ireland. And he's recruited, like a lot of detectives were, by Michael Collins. Some others are killed, of course, but some of them are turned, and Nelligan is one of those. And Nelligan ends up working for British Secret Service in Dublin Castle, but he is actually a spy for Michael Collins, and he's feeding him intelligence the whole way through. And his cover, unlike Ned Broy, for example, was never blown. You know, after the truce, when it turns out that Nelligan is a close confidant of Michael Collins, the British are amazed. But... Nelligan is recruited, first of all, to the CID, which is the Free States Protective Division, and he gets moved out of there to the military, and around September 1922, he is transferred down to County Kerry, because, as we've discussed, they realise they're dealing with a serious problem here, and they need somebody who knows their stuff. 
he's the intelligence officer, but you know, by all accounts, Nelligan gets his hands dirty just in the interrogations himself and so on like this. So Nelligan is clearly a ruthless man, a violent man, and him and O'Daly work closely together, especially after O'Daly becomes the general officer commanding in, in County Kerry. As Paddy O'Daly, as you say, there is Paddy O'Daly becomes general officer commanding in Kerry. How do things differ now that there's a new regime in place? Well, as I said, you know, W.R.E. Murphy was reluctant to execute people, or, you know, even though he covered up for the various things that were happening, which is a common pattern, sad to say, in the National Army, starting with Richard Mulcahy at the top. But I don't think he was necessarily instigating them. O'Daly's a different beast. You know, O'Daly has been through the IRA, and his mentality is, in a way, the mentality of the guerrilla. So if we get hit, we hit them back twice as hard. And Nelligan is the same way. And so... You know, O'Daly immediately executes four people when he takes over. It's apparently a signal of intent. And while Nelligan and O'Daly are taking surrenders, and Nelligan's quite clever about it, actually. He's, he's sending out leaders for all kinds of people to surrender. So it's not just the brutality. When, in March 1923, there are significant casualties, and the casualties among the Dublin Guard, O'Daly's own unit, O'Daly reacts in precisely this way. And Nelligan, Nelligan is also very strongly implicated in these affairs and kicks off what we know as the term of well, yes, as you say there about the, the casualties among the Dublin Guard, perhaps you might talk to us about Knock-Nagoshal and what that involved. Right. So there, not, the Knock-Nagoshal bomb, first of all, was a booby trap bomb hidden in a dugout. And apparently it's, it's a very local story. So there's this man, he's not a full officer, he's a cadet officer, Paddy Pats O'Connor. He's a local man. And he, he had fallen foul of the IRA. They confiscated his property because, uh, you know, he'd upset them in some way. I think he told the troops about their whereabouts or something like that. So they confiscate his property, they break into his house, and in, in, in revenge he joins the National Army. And of course, he's useful. He's a local man, he knows the local things. So the local IRA, which would have been Kerry number one brigade, apparently take the decision to kill him. And they send a false message, or they send a message to him that there's a dugout to be found in this field in Macnagoshal, which is a hamlet there in North Kerry. And Going with them is a party of six soldiers, and two of them are officers in the Dublin Guard. So um, Michael Dunn and Edward Stapleton. Both of them are pre-truce IRA members, you know, so they're from O'Daly's close coterie. And when they get to the dugout, it's a, a trip mine, so apparently they lift a stone and that detonates the, the mine, the bomb. And it, it's fairly horrific, so out of the six soldiers, five of them are blown to pieces. You know, they have difficulties even recognising the bodies afterwards, and you know, explosions are God awful things. Um, another one has his legs blown off, and, and he's you know he's disabled for the rest of his life. And O'Daly particularly is enraged by the deaths of Michael Dunn and Edward Stapleton. So they're close colleagues, probably friends of this. And, and again, to O'Daly's mentality, you know, we are the true Irish soldiers. We we're the ones who fought black and tans, and, and were killed by these cowardly tricks. So the thing about mines is, like, mines is probably the most effective weapon that the IRA has, both in the War of Independence and the Civil War, in the sense that you can kill large numbers of, you know, the enemy without necessarily risking yourself. But it also enrages the Free State troops because they, you know, they view it as not a fair fight. They're blown to bits without an ability to defend themselves. So O'Daly's enraged by this, and, and supposedly uh, O'Daly has to be restrained from physically attacking the prisoners in Ballymun and the barracks, actually himself. But we can kind of piece together what happens now. It's apparently Nelligan who comes up with the plan for a coordinated series of reprisals to show them that we mean business, you know. And again, it's this mentality of if you hit us, we'll hit back twice as hard. Now, just to comment on this, it does seem strange that civil war between Irish nationalists, because that's what it is, you know. For all the talk about the green and tans and everything, there's no way O'Daly is in any way pro-British, and neither is Nelligan, you know. So we're going to hit back twice as hard. And what they do is Nelligan apparently comes up with they take nine members of Kerry Number One Brigade from Tralee. Some of them quite recently captured. Interestingly, one of them just captured off a boat in Liverpool where he'd been running guns to and from. And, and uh, they later sent over detectives to Liverpool to, to um, raid his house. Uh, I'm always curious about how that worked. But anyway, so they take nine members of Kerry Number One Brigade out of Ballymullen Barracks. They beat them up first. They take them to a barricade. Now, O'Daly has announced publicly that a future irregular, which is their word for them to treat as prisoners, will be used to clear mines. And so that's supposedly what's going on here. They're taken to a barricade. In fact, they're tied around this mine. Their hands are bound and they're tied around this mine. And, and Stephen Fuller, who's the survivor, of course, is, you know, he's, he's a horrible description of it. You know, they're asked to say their prayers. That's the 
Houthis are doing in those days in Ireland, and and then say, "Our oh, boys in Macintosh have got time to say the prayers." They knock the hats off their head and they detonate the bomb. And Stephen Fuller's blown here by the blast, so it's this weird thing by explosions. You know, most of the bodies are just shredded. You know, and there's stories about bits of body parts on the trees and stuff like this. Whereas Fuller, his clothes are blown off. He's actually unscathed. You know, he's burn injuries, but he's unscathed by the explosion. You know, explosions are very strange like that. But when you read the army reports of what happened, they say, yeah, the, so the prisoners were clearing this barricade, and there was a regular mine there, and nine prisoners are killed. Nine, right? In fact, eight are killed, because it's fuller, it's blown clear. And, you know, it's cared for by local family, which does show another difference in Kerry, that the locals are much more sympathetic to the guerrillas than they are elsewhere in the country. And... Fuller starts to tell the truth about what's happening in the days afterwards, which notices posted up there. Well, we haven't talked about coming the man, but it's the women who get the message out. So they post these, these notices, and the notices say Kerry knows the truth, which again speaks also to the kind of element of local pride or whatever that the anti-truth rights embody. But also, at mass, the coming the man women. And mass is, you know, mass is not, it's a social occasion and it's, it's a method of communication as well. So they disrupt mass and they, they offer prayers for the people who, who were killed at Valley Seaview. And, you know, this gets the message out there. But that's not the end of the story, of course, because Nelligan's idea had been to do simultaneous reprisals of the two other IRA brigades, which are Kerry 2 and 3. And they do this. So, they, you know, there's, I think, uh, five blown up in, in Countess Bridge outside Killarney. And then another batch blown up at Carter's Mead. And Richard McGellig has shown that there was yet another batch due to be blown up at Scarlet Glyph, but the mine didn't go off. What makes so grim as well is that the prisoners were tortured and had their legs broken. Yeah. So that if they were blown free of the blast, they couldn't run off. And yeah, so there was another one. That, the, right, so there was another one who escaped from the blast at Kepler's Bridge. And so the next atrocity, which was a couple of days later at Harsavine, yeah, they shot them in the legs first. So not, yet another Dublin Guard officer. And former IRA man Joe Griffin said, "I knocked them to their knees and then shot them in the knees, and then they did. Then they detonated the, the bomb, and then anyone who survived, they shot them. So you know, it's it's unbelievably horrific stuff, and it's you know is become emblematic of the of the civil war. But it's, even that is not quite the end of the story because they actually go on the hunt and they hunt down individual members of the anti-treaty that's dressed in plain clothes and with typical IRA weapons of the Peter the Painter automatic, you know, the Mauser pistol and the Tommy gun." so that they're mistaken for an IRA column, and they call up the houses of various others, and they shoot them. And so the army report says by the end of the month, we're very happy to report, or by the middle of the month, actually, we're very happy to report we've killed 34 irregulars in Kerry, and we think we've broken their resistance, you know. Most of them were some of the most inveterate opponents of the government, and they say most of them were killed in these minor explosions. So, you know, although the army official explanation of the one that's defended in the Dole by Richard Mulcahy is they're accidentally killed for moving barricades, Mind. In reality, the army is very happy with what's happened. They think they've dealt a great blow to the anti-treaty rights by killing so many of them in March 1923. Now, of that 34 that they mentioned, some of them are killed in combat, but most of them aren't. You know, so 18 of them are killed in the mine blasts, and most of the rest are assassinated. But this, what's interesting as well, is that the optics of investigations into uh, these atrocities do the government of Dublin really care what happened? Are they going through the motions, or do they want to get to the bottom of, of what actually happened? Let's be honest about this. They don't care. You know? So in terms of Richard Mulcahy, who was the anomalous position of being both the Minister for Defence and the, the Army Commander-in-Chief, they have a whitewash inquiry, which is led by O'Day himself, the man who carried out the atrocities, or certainly ordered them, along with Nelligan. And... You know, then they, they just lie about it. They, they, uh, interestingly, I mean, the reports of Kerry are unbelievably mendacious, like not only about the atrocities, but also about, you know, we killed 100 irregulars yesterday led by Emma de Valera, this kind of stuff. So there's a terrible culture of lying anyway in the army and, and dishonesty. That's one thing. Now, Kevin O'Higgins, who's the Minister for Home Affairs, who's a big rival in the government of Richard Mulcahy, who sees the civil war as the vindication of law and order, is quite upset, actually, for what had happened in Kerry. But not because they killed these people, but because they killed them illegally. So the Wiccans wanted them shot by firing squad after court-martial, which was the standard practice. So it's a very strange mentality. And one of the things you see is that executions have been suspended, as I said, from January 1923, and they resumed with a vengeance in March, just after Bally Sea. 
Now, I can't prove this, but it looks very strongly to me as if this is a way to get his way. So we said, we don't want these illegal reprisals. Let's have legal ones. And so, you know, they, they shoot four from Tony Gough, and from Bo, they shoot four from Wexford. And so, and they, they various executions in Mullingar and Blown and stuff as well, and, and Dundalk. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the loss of life, not much concern there. Wiggins is concerned because troops are acting illegally and Kai's lying about and kind of you know, uh, showing contempt for his authority as the Minister for Justice or Minister for Home Affairs. But in terms of the loss of life, there's not too much concern, sad to say. But when you read about the aftermath of these atrocities, uh, one of the things that really struck me was when the families of the victims would go to collect the remains of their their uh, sons and brothers and husbands. The the reaction from O'Daly and obviously something he's ordered as well, ordering the uh, army band in the barracks to play like ragtime music and jazz music as the the uh, coffins are being brought out. This really just a utter savagery. So it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, and the other thing is that you know, so they presented the victims' families with nine coffins. That point, they still thought Stephen Fuller had been killed. And by the way, when they found that Stephen Fuller was still alive the week afterwards, they said it has it has been determined that the prisoner Fuller survived, but he is now insane. You know, but nine coffins, right? And the bodies have been pulverized. You know, so they, they you know, it wasn't clear that even the, the remains were really in the bodies, like the correct remains, or if they haven't been mixed together. You know, this is the horror of it. So. And supposedly the army band played something wrong, and, and somebody said, oh, we can't prove it's ragtime. It doesn't really matter what they played. The, the relatives were amazed by this, and they, they took their own coffins, they broke open the army coffins, and in what must have been an absolutely horrific event, they transferred whatever remains were there into their own coffins. Now, if you think about the state of the bodies, like, yeah. it doesn't even bear thinking about it. But it's, as you mentioned to me before, Carl, it's real hearts of darkness. You know, people descended yeah. into some form of savagery, which is not really political at all. It's, you know, it's some form of kind of primitive savagery here. Yeah, and I suppose the other parallel as well is that you have O'Daly, he's not from uh, Kerry, he's not from Munster, he's down in this, what he views as like the back of beyonds, like, you know, among all these backward savages, and just behaving like, you know, a warlord. Yeah, and that's the thing. So, like, I mean, in the army inquiry the following year, which incidentally manages not to talk about Ballyseedy, there's very interesting testimony where they say one of the problems with the National Army was it had effectively warlords around the country and they all had their own private armies and they had their own little castle and it was almost impossible for the government in Dublin to control them, even if they wanted to. Now Mulcahy showed not a great deal of zeal in controlling them anyway, but that, that's definitely a thing. And so where you had a guy like O'Daly who had this very ruthless mentality of, of hitting back to this casualties caused to his own troops, this is what you got. Now, I would say, you know, obviously this is emblematic of the Republican struggle and so on, the horrors of Ballyseed and Kerry, and shows the illegitimacy of the free state to the Republican narrative. However, I mean, the contradiction there is Paddy O'Day himself was a Republican soldier. You can't describe him any other way. And I would say the more long term thing is, in terms of the Irish state, is the culture of impunity. So, I mean, this is a horrendous atrocity totally illegal by the free state standards, which are not high standards in 1923. And not long as no one ever punished, but there's lies which are still the official version of what happened. And this is this does have a long-term effect. So if you see, you know, whether it's the CID of the 20s and 30s or, you know, the Broy's Harriers, the special branch under under Paul, or the heavy gang of the 1970s, it's the same. So in the name of state security, they kind of do whatever they want. And it gets covered up. And this bleeds over into other areas as well. So not just state security, but all kinds of other things. And I do think this is part of the very dark legacy of the Civil War outside of the specifically, you know, Republican interpretation of it. Absolutely. And uh, another one just brings to mind the silent train robbery and uh, uh, but even the case into that. But even the Kerry Babies case, yeah. like Pinton O'Toole had a column. Not always a fan of Pinton O'Toole, but I, I did see something in this saying there is a connection, first of all, because... Uh, Joanna Hayes was a niece of Stephen Fuller, which is yeah. incredible. But the guardy went down and they fitted someone up for a crime and then they lied about it. So had there not been this culture of kind of impunity at the start of the state, would we have had these, these kind of things? 
happen. I do, I do think this is this is a long term kind of problem. And one of the things that <clears throat> I thought was quite interesting from the uh, Civil War Conference, and I said there, you can find them all on YouTube if you type in Kerry Civil War Conference, was talking about the uh, experience of women uh, during the Civil War, particularly the common man women, and it does really feed into the whole idea of the lack of discipline among the Free State soldiers and Paddy Daly's command in Kerry at the time, the treatment of common man <clears throat> activists, and also another thing that's a really bizarre case, the, the Ken Mayer case, just the assaults, sexual assaults, there's the uh, painting of women and beating yeah. of women, shaving heads, and this bizarre hatred that sections of the Protreatites had towards women and disbelief that the, the women were the, the most active and the most extreme Republicans. You see, the thing is, though, with regard to the women, that is true. You know, women were absolutely vital to the guerrilla war effort of the anti treaty outbreak. Not only in Kerry, but in, you know, in, in Cork and in Mayo and in Sligo, places where you wouldn't expect them. Typically, typically the profile is they're the young, educated women. A lot of them are national school teachers. They're hardly nationalists, really, because they're mostly about maternity politics. But certainly, they're doing the communication, they're doing the political work, they're doing the propaganda, because the men of the anti treaty side are in the hills with guns, mm-hmm. you know, on the run. And for the first part of the Civil War, the women are not arrested, or they are still let go. And O'Daly, just like he brings a hardness to executions, brings a hardness to certain treatment that come in the man as well. So, like Mary McCullough talked about in the conference in Tralee, you know, they get beaten up, they yeah, they get smeared with green paint, and, and they get interned in prison just like the men. So there's a big roundup in Cork and Kerry women in March 23 as well, around the same time as all these atrocities are going on. But, I mean, the only thing I will say is, it's wrong to see those women as just as victims because they're competence, you know, and they would have been proud to see themselves as competence too. And the anti-treaty heads and the pro-treaty heads both say it's the women keeping this going, you know. Now some of that is prejudice, yes, but it also we should acknowledge that women played a central role in this period, and and it's not a peripheral role. Like it, it couldn't, the civil war couldn't have continued for as long as it did without the coming of man women. Now, with regard to the Ken Mayer case, though, that's something slightly different. So we should say that they weren't coming to man, they weren't competent. They weren't Republicans at all. Yeah. They were they were pro-treatyites. So one of the things we didn't mention with regard to Bally City and the other atrocities is there's two Free State officers, Niall Harrington and another man called McCarthy, who are the whistleblowers in modern parlance. So McCarthy resigns from the army. Harrington writes directly to the commander in chief Mulcahy and tells him what happened. You know that it was a bomb made by our side and the prisoners were murdered. You know, and Harrington writes about this in his memoir, The Kerry Landings, which you, you mentioned you Yes, an excellent book. Underappreciated book. Yeah, yeah. So, O'Daly knows, because Mulcahy has covered for him, he knows that this man Harrington knows the truth and has told his superiors about it. Now, here's where it gets murky, right? The McCarthy family are a Redmondite family. It's the local doctor there in Kenmare, which is a very prestigious position at the time in society. The Redmondites, let alone pro treatyites they don't care for the likes of O'Daly, a former gunman, you know, former IRA gunman. And in addition to that, one of the daughters is going out with Niall Harrington, young man, young officer, who is the gander whistleblower. O'Daly and Flood, Captain Flood is another man who's mixed up in the Valley City, he's named, you know, as having, you know, finished out prisoners and stuff. Although O'Daly is married, by the way, but they ask these young women, the daughters of the Dr. McCarthy, to a dance, and the young women say to them, no, we don't go out with murderers. And there's two things here. One of them is they've been sexually spurned, and these are violent men, you know. Second thing is, though, we don't go out with murderers means they know they know what they did, you know. So whether it's anger or drunkenness, or it's an attempt to intimidate people to keep their mouths shut, or all of the above, there's this brutal assault by O'Daly and Flood, and I think Captain Clark, yet again, is also named by the scene very as well, on these young women. In Kenmare, and they strip, they may or may not have raped them. It's not clear from the testimony, but they certainly stripped them naked and beat them. You know, it's, it's a horrific assault. And this is in December 1923. This is after the Civil War is over, covered in an engine grease and everything and oil. Yeah, so their hair would fall out. Yeah. You know, no, and it, like I said, it's not entirely clear that whether they raped them, but it's, it's, it's likely they did. I mean, for example, one of the officers has scratch marks on his face, which is typical kind of defensive wounds, or, or wounds of someone defending themselves, rather, mm. you know, from sexual assault. So it's fairly horrific, and again, these are the pro-treating family, 
scions of the community. So O'Higgins, who had not been happy with these people, of course, because of their illegality, he's really outraged by this. But you see this quite disturbing attitude among some other free state ministers. So um, Ernest Blythe, for example, says, I don't see anything wrong with a few tarts getting a few slaps. Um, but anyway, Cahir Dabbitt, who was the Attorney General, wants to prosecute them, but it, some sort of basically kind of cover-up is done again. And instead, O'Daly and the other officers are made to resign from the army. And actually, it's looking for them to be in one way, because this is just before their particular coterie, the former squad man, tried attempted mutiny in March 24, and O'Daly managed not to be involved because he just been forced to resign from the army. But I mean, this is after the Civil War. This is sexual assault of some sort on pro-treaty supporters. You know, O'Daly should have gone to jail. He, he really should have. So should the other officers. There's no question about it. And people in, in the free state government and the legal system, they knew this. And yet, his connections and his influence in the army was still enough to protect him from prosecution. As I've said before, sometimes with some of these characters, the thing that surprised me most is that uh, O'Daly died in his bed, lived to a long age. And so did the rest of them. You know, we discussed yeah. this before. I mean, you think there would have been more revenge after the Civil War, and there probably was in, in the localities, but certainly the former squad man, the the hard men of the pro-treaty army in the Civil War, mostly were kicked out of the army. They had a strange enough legacy in the, in the sense that they sort of made up with the anti-treaty guys afterwards. You know, some, a lot of them worked together in the sweepstakes under John McGrath and with the anti-treaty guys. Ian Tobin, who'd been the head of army intelligence and informal head of this group in the Civil War, ended up being made clerk of the doll by Emma de Valera in the late 1930s. So there's a strange kind of realignment. Mm. It doesn't quite work on party lines, actually, strangely enough. Well, to wrap it up, I'd say as well, if anyone is interested to go on YouTube, you can see David Nelligan being interviewed in his old age with that uh, Ken Griffith documentary where they're interviewing people like Moira Comerford and uh, so on. And, you can, and you know, an old man sitting on his comfy couch. And a bunkier old man. And a bunkier old man. Yeah. Uh, you can see the interviews with Stephen Fuller. He was interviewed for Robert Key's documentary series about Irish history that was on the BBC and one of the things that's interesting is that he was asked why did you wait till now it was done in the early 80s. Oh we should mention Stephen Fuller for Gennifer and Paul TD for many years. That's right. Never mentioned by the C as a TV. And uh, he says well, why are you only talking about it now? He says it's the first time I've ever been asked. You know nobody in RT had any interest in yeah. dragging up the past and interviewing him. But you can see how deeply traumatised he still is by the events as he's been interviewed. And it's not that long ago, even though it's 100 years ago, it's still like our, our grandparents, Yeah, you know, and I mean, it took, about it. it takes you outside the politics, it does show what people in conflict are capable of, and it's a very dark sidelight into the darker regions of human nature, I suppose. But the other thing as well is, just to finish up, we've talked about like the, the culture that it left in the state with in some ways, but also, I mean, in particular in County Kerry, you know, there's Right up until the present day, there's a real sense of grievance. They, you know, the people were murdered and, and was lied about what happened to them. You know, and that, that exists down to the present day. Now, again, one of the things to bear in mind is there is also a pro-treaty tradition in County Kerry, but among the anti-treaty Republican, hardline Republican thing, is it exceptionally strong in Kerry, particularly in, in North Kerry. And it really does date back to the Civil War, you know, so why would Kerry, for example, be more militant about the north of Ireland than somewhere else? So the reason is the Civil War, you know, so they, it, it, you can see this in, in voting patterns and all to this day. Right, well, there we go. We'll leave it there. And uh, just to say, you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we're at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show. It only takes a few seconds, but it is really helpful. And any feedback as well, if you want to contact us, uh, probably Twitter is the best way to go. Um, and if you hear an episode and you like it, please share it on your social media as well. It's a really great way for us to promote the show. And just to say as well that John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting us, uh, we'd really, really appreciate that. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes for the podcast. So until next time, on behalf of myself, my co-presenter John Boyd, thank you very much for listening.
Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.